So yeah, so welcome to the podcast. I guess what we can do for the beginning is for you to walk through your background a little bit. Uh, I sure. know you kind of shared it a little bit with us, but we'd love a little yeah. bit more juicy details from that. For and sure. then we'll we'll ask a bunch of questions after that. Okay, for sure. So yeah, at a personal level, as I mentioned, I was born and raised in Johannesburg, South Africa, and I moved to Ottawa, Canada almost 25 years ago. And yeah, shortly after moving here, I finished my high school and I went to college as a graphic designer. So I was trained in the traditional graphic design sense and started my career out in the the print and branding worlds. All the while, I had a very keen interest in the web. Started at school, we we were taught how to use Dreamweaver. I don't know if you all remember that tool was meant to be a WYSIWYG website builder and it didn't work very good. And I got so frustrated with the, the outcomes that I taught myself CSS and HTML. And and that's what caught my passion. So again, as as I was working as a print designer, I was always dabbling with websites on the site. And after a couple of years, I eventually followed my passion to a, a local company called Real Decoy. And I joined on as a front-end developer. And surprisingly enough, that's where I discovered UX design. They they were an engineering-led company, and to de-risk their like building process, they used these things called wireframes and did stakeholder interviews and information architecture diagrams, and uh, that like piqued my interest. And shortly after, you know, after a while of like front-end developing, I transitioned back into a design role there, and it was like a rabbit hole, you know, learning about UX, and then I found out about you know, working within a product company and really like dedicating yourself to to a single project or a product. Because before that, I had worked in consulting space the whole time. And that, you know, eventually led me to companies like Shopify and Automatic, where I, I'd worked remote before the pandemic. It was, it was a nice thing and I still love working remote. And then, yeah, early last year, Naz from Remix reached out to me. I'd already kind of heard about NFTs and was kind of following the Web3 journey. It was in the really early stages. And when he mentioned this opportunity to kind of dive into the world of Web3, I was on board right away. Again, we he was, we were, as a company, looking to launch a marketplace for selling digital wearables. And um, I've got three young kids that play a lot of Roblox and Fortnite. And I saw the future. <laughs> I see the future in them. Like they're throwing down tons of money just for these like outfits every day and they really cherish them and again I, I thought if I could get into this thing called Web3 at the ground level it would be great for me to kind of grow into it that way because it is still really early days with 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 Web3 and the, the metaverse and all that stuff yeah it is very early and mm-hmm. Like to me, you were one. Like, if if we go back to like, we briefly worked together at UI, uh, mm-hmm. like that that startup that I really enjoyed and it it helped propelled my career, like mm-hmm. beyond belief. But to me, if I go back to my way with you, you were kind of the first multidisciplinary designer that I had truly seen. Like it, we all like worn numerous hats, etc. But to me, when I met you. You were like that individual where, you know, he could code, he knew UUX, he knew research, he knew. So every time we came up with, you know, an idea, you were kind of do, going at that 360 degree angle. So that's something I always appreciated about you that you weren't just saying, oh, it doesn't look pretty. And you know, were always talking about like that multidisciplinary approach. And that's how I always portrayed you after even like 
in all our conversations afterwards. I always portrayed you as that as that individual. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, and I think that's that's probably rooted in my background as a, as an artist, kind of growing up. That's that's kind of how I got into graphic design. I was kind of looking for a way to make money, being creative and and doing artistic stuff. And then I, I guess I've always had a technical side too. And so, yeah, necessity of working at startups is always wearing a lot of different hats. And uh, yeah, I enjoy the 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 process. It's all the way through. It's pretty fun. Do do you see that design is more of being on the technical side or the creative side of the thing? Like, is there, I know that there's a blend of it, but do you think there's more one way or the other? I think, yeah, to be, if I'm honest with myself, I think there's always a place for creativity in design. But when it comes down to being technical and doing your research and understanding your audience and creating products that have value, I guess it leans more into the, the technical side in, in, in reality. But like I said, there's there's always a place for creativity in design. And, and again, you're creating something of value. You want to create beautiful things because people are attracted to beautiful things. And, and counter to the creative like mindset, you don't want to always reinvent the wheel for everything. Because again, you want to create products people can use and they don't want to like scratch their heads figuring out how to use the thing. But yeah, there's always moments where creativity kind of pushes things over to the next level right yeah i guess you you could say creativity is required to be unique and to be a, an innovative experience that hasn't been done before but then i guess the utilitarian aspect of the technical side of things you you need it to kind of fit into existing behaviors mm -hmm. right and then therefore well the reason why i kind of asked this question is because i was thinking about it recently Someone on Twitter, I forgot who it was, said that designers should face the, the realization that we're not really creating, for the most part, new things. And that we're just, in a sense, decorators. Because we're just making the same thing again and again and again. Marketing websites, landing page portfolios, you know, we're, we're making it a UI, but the UI has the same tabs, it has the same buttons, it has, you know a feed, a chat. It's the same thing over and over again, just tweaked. Do you do you see it in that light or do you see it beyond that? I definitely see some some truth in that. And again, if you, I think, box yourself into a very narrow definition of what a designer is, you could get caught up in that and, and then very soon have your job taken away by AI. Because <laughs> the, the tools, I, I don't know about you all, I'm using like, there's like a version of chat GPT and notion that I use like crazy. Now the tools are getting like super sophisticated and it's only a matter of time that we're going to start seeing UI design. I, I think I saw one the other day, but matter of time before really good ones start showing up that you can write a prompt and it'll create a UI for you. I saw Microsoft has like a graphic design AI tool that you're like, make me this graphic and it, it looks really good. And so it is as, as in a narrow definition. I believe in that, but again, as a when you when you're working as a designer, again, you need to be thinking about talking to customers and understanding the problem and really getting kind of deep in that that regard to to shape what this thing that you're going to build is right. And so, same, I mean, I, I guess the same can go at the engineering level. Like you can 
get really technical and define your project and build it to spec. But if you're not understanding the problems that you're you're solving and you're not really like solving problems, you're 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 focusing on infrastructure and stuff like that, you're not gonna get good results. And so again, if you're focused on pushing pixels, that definition holds true. But you you as designers we need to like go above and beyond just the 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 manual work. And I mean there's there's a place for that. Everybody needs to start out somewhere and as you mature as a designer you pick up again these other skills and you see the value in, in doing research and talking to people and looking at data and and connecting dots and, and again crafting like products that that have value that go beyond the pixels and then again having good design systems in place that come on the ui side just means that you get to spend more time thinking about the the real problems and not solving problems that have already been solved like a thousand times over right yeah hopefully hopefully we're not bored of that <laughs> but we, you know i think sometimes people have to do that still and mm -hmm. then they have the opportunity once they get through a lot of that to create something new and not something that's just been done before just doing it differently i, I have mean, a lot of questions but yeah um, no worries i, I love that yeah. that part of uh creation process as well i mean i i still do a good number a good bit of production work and enjoy the challenge of putting a good layout together that's visually appealing and makes a lot of sense and so there's there's always place for that as well go ahead mitch you, okay. you seem to have another yeah i, I, got, I got i got a question sure. I, was, I was like i was like yeah. you know diving into what you were saying before through mm -hmm. your background and stuff and yeah. i i have uh, I have like a hundred questions. So you mentioned you love remote work. Mm -hmm. I do. Yeah. <laughs> why Why do you love remote work? Well, I've, like I mentioned, I've been at it for a while now, I guess, coming on six years. And so I've got, a, I've, I've got a family, I've got three kids. And so when I first kind of got into remote work, I did it as a means to kind of give myself more freedom in the work day to be around as my my youngest son was born while my wife was home for maternity leave for a year I was home with her and in between calls I was like around my child and and it's given basically for me personally it's given me a lot of flexibility around my day to get all my work done but also have time for exercising and eating healthy food at home and food that I'm happy to eat. And yeah, and so it, it is a lot about kind of having flexibility around my schedule and working in an environment that I that I enjoy and not, not wasting any time commuting or any of that kind of thing. Having said that, again, I do believe that like a key part of remote working is having regular touch points with your team in person where you can connect with them and build strong bonds. So at Automatic, for an example, they would have regular meetups where we would... Um, go meet in in fun like exotic locations sometimes for a week at a time and you'd be sharing a space with your your colleagues and going to dinners with them and working together with them and in that week I built like really really strong bonds with my my colleagues that again propelled us until the next meetup where we work would would connect again and so that that worked out really well and now I'm in a small startup and again we have infrequent physical meetups where we we get together and we just talk about work for like <laughs> till we're sick of it but we build those bonds in those moments and uh, yeah it wasn't until yesterday actually we went on a or wednesday we went on a 
trip to Montreal for an event and we spent two hours in the car talking and I was like, man, those two hours were so productive just in physical presence. Like it's very different than, than kind of being behind a, a screen like this. And so I think um, ideally in the end, you need a little balance of being in person and, and being remote, but ultimately just having that freedom for the most part to mold my day around my schedule and not, not mold my, myself around the work schedule has been the, the biggest driver for me. Uh, one, thing uh, that, uh, yeah. one thing that I remember about Automatic is I had interviewed for a job at one point at Automatic. And one of the mm -hmm. things that struck me was that the second round of the interview process was entirely in Slack. Oh, yeah. No conversation. It was just pure Slack talk. And I was like, what is this? Because it was <laughs> it was before like Automatic was already remote before everybody right. went remote. So the fact that like we weren't used to that and having like a full-blown interview on Slack, no talking. It was just to see how you could translate and communicate effectively through Slack. And I was like, I was blown away that they were doing interviews like that. Like you, yeah. it it got you, you needed to get used to that, like chatting and communicating and and so on. So it was something that I was surprised when I went through the process. Oh yeah, yeah I remember having those converse that that interview process as well. I had the same feeling. <laughs> well, I was actually going to ask a question about that specifically. Um, uh -huh. Creating bonds virtually versus in person. Mm -hmm. You said that it's like you you couldn't create a stronger bond when you meet face to face, and I agree with that. But I don't quite mm -hmm. understand why that might be. Can you articulate maybe why that is, and, and how in comparison? To automatics hiring process they're like oh yeah we're just gonna talk on slack you're not gonna see our face you're not gonna see our body mm -hmm. language which is 90 percent of the right. communication yeah i mean at automatic they they had that that like i guess synchronous chat like slack interview as part of it and then they also did kind of a test where again they'd see your thought process as you worked on a project you would asynchronously like post updates on in their in their internal system and you know you would have conversations through comments on on that initial, those posts and so that was one way i guess that they they got to know how people worked in their environment and then yeah i guess in person again when you're working remote with these people you, you all you know them are as is like a little avatar on a screen until you you meet them in person it <laughs> i think nine times out of ten the biggest shock is like how hot tall or short somebody is when you when you meet them in person but I think in in again in my experience at Automatic and and other places is when when you meet in person that way, you're just kind of um, paired up with these people for an extended period of time, and you there's a lot of bonding through working through challenges together because the the that week that we would get together would be structured with activities. I always believe just kind of more. Social activities are better than doing work because the work wasn't very productive in that time. But just you're, you're working and bonding and solving challenges together. And then you're breaking bread together at dinner and, and lunch. And then you're going out at night together. And again, for a week at a time, all you're doing is talking work. You're getting to know each other. And so, again, I, I've just created such like amazing memories. Again, traveling to all kinds of cities through the U.S. and being out late at night with these people and and having a good time is just yeah really really special time in my life. That's when the bonds really happen is late at night when a couple of beers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I want to shift and, just yeah. gear yeah. for a sec here because 
like your career is really interesting, but you went into Web3 and mm-hmm. you went and, you know, you started working with Nas. Nas, who previously founded Canvas Pop, for those who don't know, Canvas Pop with this like print, like these big canvases on demand. And, and like he was one of the original founders of that uh, mm-hmm. avenue. And like, so he, he already knew how to grow a business, how to scale a business. What made you, is that, Oh, how, let me frame it. Is that one of the reasons you decided to go and try it out with Nas because he had already founded a previous company or it was just you, you were so excited to get into Web3 and all those avenues? I mean, his track record helps. Again, we we had established a bond before we we even like talked about working together. And so we would connect on, on a regular basis. And uh, yeah, when he proposed kind of working together, his track record definitely both was inspirational and was a, a boost of confidence. It's working in the startup world, again, it can be hectic and there's a, a big risk in, in kind of joining a startup that you never know if it's going to make it or, or not. And I felt a lot of certainty working with, with Nes based on his track record that way. That, and so that was, was part of my decision. The other part was at the, the time we were going through the, the bull market and NFTs were just exploding and there was like tons of money going around. And so on the other side, I was like, I'm getting in on this. And so I'm gonna, one hand, I was thinking, I'm going to make a ton of money. And we, we have yet to make a ton of money, but that was what another motivator. And then from the technology perspective, as I mentioned, I see this as the future i mean again if you you just look at in the past the web's already gone through two like major evolutions and we're really early in this this third one just and and in both other early stages there were naysayers and and people that couldn't see that this was the future but one way or the other it's happening (laughs) and it's it is the future and so the the best thing is to kind of embrace it early on in my mind and and kind of getting at this this ground level what what exactly is it embracing uh, web3 yeah yeah like, can you can you define what that really kind of is for those who don't know yeah so i think the best way to describe it is to kind of talk through the different evolutions of the web so yeah the the internet i guess started way back in the early 70s people kind of networking computers and sending some basic messages to each other and it wasn't until 1990 that the first browsers and websites appeared. And so for, for Web1, um, very basic read capabilities on the internet. You just had static websites, well, and it started helping to distribute con- like information in an easy way. And then it, it kind of hit its peak by 1994 as you know websites were kind of building and JavaScript started slowly emerging and and wasn't really until about 2005 that Web2 started emerging. It came out, I don't know if you all remember, but I very distinctly remember the term Web2 came out and there was a very distinct look and feel to it with round buttons and shadows and stuff like that. And this this new phase of the internet built off its predecessor with reading capabilities, but it also introduced publishing. And so we all became publishers as you know databases from a technology point of view came into effect and the website got it. Um, the websites became more interactive, and we got social media platforms. We were able to publish content a lot freer, and so uh, there was again another explosion of information and connectiveness that happened in the the Web two era. And then Web three kind of the the term was coined, I guess, early twenty twenty one, and again it continues to build on um, 
Web1 with read capabilities and open source technologies. Publishing capabilities are here. The internet, again, Web2 became more interactive and the, the promise of Web3 is it's going to become more immersive with new technologies like AR and VR. And it adds a new layer, the read and write, which is own. And so the, the term own can mean a lot of things, but in the context of, of Web3, one of the, way, the ways you can interpret it is that you can own intellectual property. You can buy things and you can take that thing you own and create something new out of it and make more money off of it if you want to. You can sell it and make more money. And so, again, it's it's partially um, this idea of ownership and community that come along with, with Web3. But then there's all the technologies in the background that are facilitating this, like the blockchain and uh, artificial intelligence and AR and VR, as I mentioned. And so, um, yeah, so... Web3 essentially is a, a new way of looking at the, the internet, again, creating more immersive experiences around communities where people come together. Community has always been a cornerstone of society and the the ideals of Web3, again, are to bring people closer together, to give people a stake in these these um, things that they're, these communities that they own and extract value at an equal level for everybody. So it's not only about corporations making money, like there's the promise of Web3 is that we kind of distribute wealth and distribute the opportunities for anybody that that has an internet connection, ideally. Yeah, it's a, it's fascinating where we came from and where we're going. Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of people, It's and it can be scary if you think about it, when you look at all this and like, no, oh, I don't want to do this. It's like, it's never going to catch on. And, but it's scary on how fast that evolution is going and moving. And oh, yeah. I, I, I feel it's all about like sovereignty and empowering the individual users in many ways. Whereas before everything was kind of controlled and a lot of things that are coming up is to empower each individual in the space to, to own their money, to own their, their internet, to own everything so that they can be uniquely theirs and it, it's it's scary because like if you think of crypto if you lose that seed phrase like your bank account's gone, gone yeah. forever yeah. Mm-hmm. that's scary and for somebody that writes everything on pieces of paper and loses half of his shit like <laughs> that, that's scary to me like i need yeah. to write it on a wall almost so it's <laughs> it, but it at the same time it's very interesting on it's almost like it's going to sound like i'll try to make an analogy but if you look at our great-grandparents, they used to hide their money in, in their mattress mm-hmm. and say, because I don't trust the bank, I don't trust, everything is like I want. It feels like it's going the same way, but through that key. So it'd be mm-hmm. like everything, like you you become empowered of everything, but it's all like through the internet now or like through Web3 and, and et cetera. So it's interesting on how we've gone that far so fast. And I kind of want to make a point of what you just said, Pascal. There's a reason why our grandparents hid their money in their couches or in their couches and their mattresses and, and in their fridges. I, I actually know that my grandparents went to go visit one of their friend's houses who was hit by a hurricane a couple of years ago. And they're like, can you get the money out of the fridge? And my grandparents are like, no. what are you talking about? And they had a fridge full of money, just cash. No. <laughs> no but like the the reason for that is because the banks lost all the money at that point like the I know. stock market crash right they had their all money taken away they lost all this, this money that they're investing so of course they're going to be gripping the pearls like 
they're, they're going to be trying to keep it away from, from, from that scenario as, as much as possible. But now that everything's becoming so intertwined, uh, you know, in this new era of privacy, digital privacy, right? And, and ad revenue and money kind of being flown through getting your eyeballs on ads, clicking them, you know, becoming more addicted. There's a new incentive that's driving people to kind of be a part of these communities because now that they own it, they can also, like you said before, both of you, they can kind of get, reap the benefits of that, right? And so it's kind of interesting because Web, Web 1 was really about sh- the, the democracy of information, sharing information with everyone and, and anyone with an internet connection. The second one was a slight evolution of interactivity that allowed for, uh, unfortunately, some people to take advantage of that and then create models that were, you know, uh, almost against the people that were using the products in a sense, right? And now that we have this revitalization of, you know, let's go back to Web 1.0, but with all the good of Web 2.0, and let's add an additional couple layers to it, decentralization, ownership. Now we have Web 3. But it's interesting to me because in Web 1 and 2, there was government enforcement that enforced ownership, right? You, you If you had before a government even owned like land or like they had like any any jurisdiction over land you can say you own this land like you conquered it but then if somebody is stronger and has more weapons than you they'll conquer it from you right they'll kill you they'll take it from you against your will you have no kind of middleman to dispute that now you know up until now we had the government to kind of do that and now we have code that kind of allows you to decide oh this person owns this digital thing but do they so I'm, I'm, the, I'm trying to lead to a question here. Mm-hmm. You know, how real is this ownership? I understand it's kind of like a passport where you have like a, a code that identifies you, right? right. Otherwise, they get a new passport to get a new code. If you have it stolen or, or lost or something, then that old one's gone, right? Then everything attached to it's gone. Then you have to get a new one. Now, that's kind of like what NFTs do, right? They have an identifier that says this is the thing, but like, I can just right-click, copy, paste into my Figma file that image, and then I have that image. So mm-hmm. how much ownership really is there? Yeah, so that's a good question. And part of the part of what is different in Web3 is things are becoming trustless thanks to the technology. So this is going to be a really technical answer to the, the question. And so what the, the blockchain is, is again, it's, it's a series of databases across spread across a big network where information is kind of recorded and due to the nature of that structure is why where the trust comes in in saying this is really something you own because the record is kept and it cannot be erased and it's really hard to to fake something on the the blockchain in that way so again the authenticity comes out of the technology and how it's set up it's again really hard to to fake it or to to copy and paste while at the surface level you'd see an nft as a as an image again the the smart contract and the way that it's it's kind of minted again has that that authenticity baked into it and so when you do go to a website and you've got and you're connecting your digital wallet and you're providing this nft as a proof point that i own this thing that again that technology is what is deciding this is authentic it's true and you are who you say you are kind of thing. That said, again, like previous 
stages and in everything in this world there are malicious actors that know how to hack wallets and steal your stuff i think it's almost like a rite of passage for people getting into web3 you're gonna eventually get hacked and someone's gonna drain your wallet and you're gonna like lose money and you'll smart enough and and find there's again ways that you can be protect yourself so that you're not gonna that's not gonna happen to you we all and screw so, up. We all screw up at least once. Yeah, this, and you this gotta, podcast is sponsored by Ledger. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you gotta you gotta learn those lessons. So uh, yeah, so the the ownership is just baked into the t- technology. Is is the short of that the answer? It's it's just really hard to fake it. It's really hard to be deceptive in that way. And only, really, again, the only way to 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 do that would be if you hack somebody's wallet and you kind of present yourself as them because you have their keys and you can do that. It sounds like it's by design mm-hmm. specifically meant to be very good at certain things that help build trust. Right. I find that it still lacks in the user experience side of things to to continue building that trust, right? So the technical side of it is sort of there, but that also relies on people relying on other people who are smart enough and knowledgeable enough to read the code. Right. right. So if it's open source, you know, you know, we use open source models for tons mm-hmm. of things, you know, and, and tons of products, right? But I can't read the source code of that. I don't know Python that well. I can kind of kind of parse through it a little bit. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, the data, right? Somebody had to have been smart enough to create the data for the AI model, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Same thing kind of like with um blockchain technology, you know, someone had to write the contract. But that mm-hmm. contract could have bugs in it that no one sees. Right. That contract could have things hidden in it that you know people don't know, and then all of a sudden they give over their wallet. It drains their wallet, like you said. Right. So, like, how how do you build trust in something that people actually can't read? Mm-hmm. So that those are all good points, and again, I think it's a lot of it is because we're so early at the stage. Even the technology we've got, like the 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 beginnings of it, I don't know if we fully kind of appreciated what it can do and how it can do it. We still haven't like conceived like how to use these tools in in a way that uh, that will work. And I think from a design perspective as well, like people are so caught up on the technology as as we were kind of getting in with Remix, we were kind of uh, very dogmatic about Web3 and doing things the Web3 way that you lose sight that it's not about Web3. It's not about the technology. It's about creating value for people. And so again, it's not about creating an NFT that's an image and selling that for $100,000. People are wisening up to that now and they're like, no, I'm not going to pay a million dollars for a picture. I'm paying a million dollars for access to this community and for the intellectual property that I can create an instant franchise and, and be recognizable around the world with a picture of an ape. So that's what people are buying into. And so the, the trust, again, is it's a tough piece but again the the way the technology is built it kind of builds that trust in by default and and you're right there are people that can use it maliciously as we've had and uh, you know throughout time there's always going to be somebody that finds a way to game the system or to do something but again there's a lot of good people working at these problems to to kind of mitigate that and to prevent bad actors from kind of hijacking the the whole thing and so it's a little bit of faith in there that we've got to trust the system as we have through throughout time. Again, nobody thought twice about creating their Facebook account back mm-hmm. in 2005 and 
look how we all feel about Facebook now and what <laughs> they do with our stuff, right? That's a good, that's a good point. What do you yeah. mean? I don't understand. No. <laughs> but like when you transition from, you know, like your career and how do you change your mindset when you're starting to design for Web3 or the crypto space? Because mm-hmm. it's different. A lot of people have fears against it. We're still like, I think we're past the early adopter phase. But if you talk crypto to a bunch of people, they're like, nah, it's a Ponzi scheme. Like, right. there's still a bunch of people. So how do you design for it? It's, it, I think it, I want your answer on this, but it's it's beyond just the blur gradient trendy thing that we're all seeing now. <laughs> sure. I think it's beyond yeah. that. Right. How do you design for it? Yeah, again, I think getting too caught up about the the technology is what's going to get you in this trap about like, you know, you're building this thing only because you've got this technology and you're building around the technology. It really does come down to the value you're creating and, and thinking about what it is that you're putting back out into the world. And so, again, we in, in the early stages, we, we fell into th- these traps as well with, with Web3. We wanted to do it all the Web3 way. And what that results in is a lot of gates for people. Like if you don't have a wallet, you can't use the service and that's not empowering. That's not what we're trying to do. And so we've kind of are, are now working with with partners to kind of open up this technology. So again, you can sign up on our website with an email address and pay with a credit card. And the technology is all in the background and it's kind of doing its thing. And so that that on one hand is again thinking about the best experience for your audience. And so you you're looking at it from that perspective. And so that also takes understanding who your audience is and and you picking the right tools to to deliver that experience to them. So if you are going after a crypto crowd, then the wallets are, are, are fair game and they understand how that works and there's best practices around that. You you study those and you work with those and you evolve those. But there's there's an angle of education that you need to kind of deliver along the way as well. And so again, if you're gonna have people sign into your website by connecting with their wallet, you need to have something there that explains to people that don't know what a wallet is, what it is and, and how they can get one and how they can kind of start using your site in that way. And so it, it is there's a big educational component around this. And, and again, the this, this space is really new to, to a lot of people. And as you go and you learn, you, you, you probably have the best fresh eyes to come into the space and say, I don't get how this works. So how, how do you design something that I even understand, you know, and that hopefully helps other people along the way as well, right? Yeah, c- could you quickly yeah. explain what a wallet really is and how that kind of works for just the sake of this, like connecting to a website? Yeah. So a digital wallet, again, is like essentially that it's, it's a wallet for the internet. It's digital. It's encrypted with with security keys. And so, again, it becomes a personal identifier for you. Um, and then whatever you store inside that wallet, again, is used as an additional layer of identification. So think of it more like an access pass. And in that access pass, you can have money to transact. You can have NFTs, which could be anything that, that again, prove that you are this person, you you own this thing, and that net unlocks like other opportunities and things like that. And so with, with your wallet, you can connect to different websites without sharing your email address, without thinking about a password, because you, you're the only one that has access to that wallet. And so as a website, I know you are you because you've connected 
with this wallet and every time you connect with this wallet you're very unique in that way and you can i can attribute data to you that way in my database and i can i can trust that you're going to be you and so it does simplify the whole sign-in process i'm really looking forward to the day where all i need is to connect my wallet to every site and not have to put an email password for everything but again we're we're not there for the masses that this is going to be the way for for a while I, I would imagine and maybe ever like people might stick with email addresses forever and and what that would do like in the background again we can attribute a wallet to an email address and you don't know you have the wallet and we're still using the technology to to kind of all the, the rewards that come along with it as well i can and definitely you, see it oh sorry yeah oh, i was just gonna say like there's a train of thought i'm thinking when it comes to crypto and like certain tokens sometimes you got to go through like 20 different things and switch to different wallets just to go buy a certain nft like it's complicated like some some of the things we want to buy are uber complicated like buying bitcoin Mm -hmm. and all like the big ones those are easy like it's one two three step and it's done but some you got to go through like 20 loopholes oh my goodness yeah (laughs) is there but could that be the reason the value is high it could because the day it becomes so easy could potentially also be the day that the value of it decreases. Could that also be a reason right to offset like the 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 value to it? I think just back to a point that Mitchell said earlier, I think the reason why it's so hard now is because governments are still catching up and trying to understand what this technology is. Like again, if you want to buy like crypto today if a bank sees like crypto or web3 in your name like they don't want anything to do with you i mean it's getting it's getting better i couldn't make like a credit card transaction with anything crypto related like a year ago and uh, to buy crypto i had to go to this like exchange and basically like send an e-deposit to some random like debit account that i didn't know if i was gonna get you know i had to just trust that i was gonna get my crypto back and so i think that the the hardships right now again is is all about because of regulation and and not really understanding the technology and again we've got these old institutions like banks that are like what do you mean you're going to cut us out of this equation you know like back to your question about a wallet is you essentially can be a bank on your own with with crypto you you're cutting out banks and you making the ability to send money and receive money like super frictionless and and at a at a much lower cost than than you would with a bank but being the bank means you're you're on the hook as well like you're saying pascal if you lose your seed phrase you're screwed like there's no no middleman to back you up like it with a credit card if somebody steals it you go to the bank and they'll they'll reimburse you or they you know there's protections there but you are the end line with with your wallet and if you you screw up like you're you're on your own unfortunately I think that's probably one of the good benefits of having a bank, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. By design, it's like there's like a, a thing in, in between you and problems. Like if something mm-hmm. happens, God forbid, they can always recover it. It's like, oh, you know, that wasn't your transactions. All right, cool. Cutting it off. Cool. We'll right. give you back the thing. We'll figure it out. So like there's that. Maybe there, that'll eventually evolve for, for Web3. Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering what are the biggest challenges that you're currently facing designing for Web3? Again, I think the adoption piece is is troublesome for some people while the 
the Web3 world has taken off and we've got like a good user base kind of there to cater to and, and build, there's a lot of interest for other people that want to get in. And, and it's still a really big barrier. Like Pascal said, if you want to buy crypto, it's you got to jump through all kinds of hoops and it's getting really expensive in some ways. Like the, the easy things like Bitcoin and Ethereum come at a cost because so many people want to use it which means the transaction fees go up. And then you've got these other like blockchains that work just as good and they're they're faster, they're cheaper, they're more environmentally friendly. But getting that currency on that blockchain is like, again, jumping through loops and, and holes to kind of like make it happen. And so that's, that's one of the, the barriers. And then again, I think just getting too caught up on the technology and being dogmatic about Web3 is the other trap hole I'm, I'm finding that we again keep learning over and over that it doesn't pay to be dogmatic about web3 like it's about understanding your audience it's about creating value for them and then all that the rest of it like whether you use the technology whether you put it in the background it doesn't matter like you can't lose focus on your your audience and the value you're providing because then you don't have a business and you won't survive if you're not creating value at the end of the day and so again, the 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 biggest part of Web three is getting caught in this trap of doing it the Web three way. It's again all about your audience and what's the best thing for for them that you should be thinking about. Yeah, and, and not really talking too much about the technology side. Yeah, like what? Yeah, like what, what you said, the benefit for them. Yeah, people don't care. I mean, again, when you got into Facebook, you didn't care like what database they were using, and you know about cloud technology. You just cared because that you were interacting with your friends it was creating value there you're connecting with people across the world that you hadn't seen you're catching up on old high school buddies and that kind of thing and and it wasn't sold as like come and use a database you know and come use this cloud technology like, <laughs> i mean don't i don't know cloud technology gets <laughs> yeah. me pretty hot i don't know about I you know, guys. it does i get excited <laughs> about it. i in, in reality i love cloud tech but again it's never sold as cloud tech it's it's this ability to connect anywhere from any computer without owning like software on the computer so again it comes always comes back to like what are the problems you're solving and what value are you creating and not what technology you're using and doing it this way because it's the way to do it it's always about the end user and the value you're creating for them i know we're i know you you're a busy guy and we got to be mindful of your time too uh, for this but we haven't had a chance to talk about Remix and all the cool mm. stuff you're doing over there. And oh, I think, you. like, honestly, it's fantastic work. So, like, pl- I want to give a chance for you to plug in mm-hmm. the company you work for, what you do, et cetera, because I think it's a very cool space. And can you please talk about, like, what you guys do, what you do over there, and why sure. is it such a cool space? Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for that opportunity. Yeah. So I work at a company called Remix.xyz. We started out as a marketplace for selling digital wearables. And over the year, you know, we got into it at a good time. The market was still pretty healthy at the the time. And as the year has gone by, um, the market conditions have kind of made it harder to to operate in in the space. And that, again, I think we're we're just a bit too early to the scene to to have people see value in in buying digital wearables and and also having places that they can utilize them and so again the the mass adoption isn't isn't quite there and so thankfully 
uh, through this time, we've we've been building a really strong community around us. We've been kind of working with creators, and we've been taking time to get to know them and understand the challenges they've been running into. And so we're at a point now where we're repackaging our offering. And so we, again, we we started out as a platform for creators to create digital wearables very easily with 3D. There was no need to understand 3D software. There was no need to understand blockchain or smart contracts or any of that stuff. We, we kind of took care of all of that. And so we, we still have those tools. But again, we, we see the problems for creators being that they are working on lots of different projects in different places and bringing people from different places together is challenging tool in, in Web3 that people seem to want to use all the time is Discord, but it's really hard to, to use that. And creators don't have the time to, to manage or, or host a Discord server. And so there's that aspect of it. And then there's the other challenge when you're working in the Web3 space is if all you know your audience has is a, a a wallet address, it's really hard to communicate back with them and sell them stuff or, or to share updates and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, we, we're repackaging our offering to become a community platform for creators where they can create exclusive memberships for their community around them. And using our tooling, they can kind of um, create rewards for being members of this community. So they now we, we're giving creators a direct line to communicate with the people from their different communities. They can kind of bring them all to one place and communicate with them in a in a simple way. Like again, Discord, it can be a lot to, to use. It's a Slack-like app and it can be really overwhelming in a lot of ways. And so then we, we're also giving them tools to create digital wearables and physical connected products and all kinds of digital products that you can think of. And as a creator, you can decide whether you want to give them to your community or whether you want to sell them. And then and then another challenge we've heard with these creators is they, of course, they're, they're in this Web3 space and they've been working at it for a while. And But they, they've been a creator longer than Web3's been around. And so they've got a lot of people in their community or in their audience that don't have access to Web3 or are still kind of intimidated by it. And so again, we we want to lower that barrier of entry for these audiences to be able to sign up with an email address and pay for their digital products using credit cards. And so again, we've seen these challenges of bringing people together, as well as like creating digital products and selling them. And so again, that's what the, the new remix is going to be. And again, learn this, just getting back to our roots in, in product and speaking with our community and understanding that the challenges they, they have. And it's been met with a lot of excitement from the people we're working on. And we're getting really close to, to launching our pilot program where, again, we um, have hastily put this package together and now we need to kind of validate it and experiment with it and learn from it. Um, and we're going to be doing a lot of like the smoke and mirrors, making stuff happen behind the scenes as humans. <laughs> and we're, when, again, as we see ideas validate or we're seeing that they're paying off and creating value, we'll kind of create the mechanisms and invest the effort to to automate these processes so that it works smoother for, for everyone. Yeah, I think that Paul Graham has a great quote. It's a, a do when you're, when you're early in something, do things that don't scale. Yeah. Right. Test yeah. out the idea, see if it works, and then if there's enough validation that proves that it's going going to be something worthwhile to create, then you figure out how to scale it. 
Yeah, no, so. and it's it's a tough, it's a skill to like think in that way and like to not again just kind of jump at the best idea that's coming up. That you know, like again, spending the time speaking to your your audience and understanding their pain points, and then experimenting with different ways to alleviate that and seeing really like what's resonating and what's creating value before you really invest a ton of time and effort to to make it a real thing. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I. I want to end on one question. I think we're going to maybe we'll start asking everyone this question when we end the podcast Mm -hmm. because the podcast name is Shaping Design and it's really about how our guests are helping to shape the world through design. Mm -hmm. And I want to know how has design helped shape you? Oh, that's a good, good question. Again, I think always it's always been part of my, my identity as a creator Uh, and then learning about design has been good i'm sure like a lot of designers you just become very analytical about how things work out in the world and see you know that it's shaped me in that way so again when i'm using products or when i'm engaging with with brands and that kind of thing i pick up on how they're doing stuff and sometimes it's like let me take my notebook out and use that for later kind of thing or yeah and so it's it's shaped me in that and in more recent years where i've been doing a lot more customers research I think it's helped me become a better human because I've learned how to listen and not not just speak all the time. And so hopefully my wife has benefited from this uh, new skill that I have acquired. (laughs) (laughs) But I just, I'm always surprised how hard a skill listening is and how much work it takes to really like hone it in and, and become a good listener. Awesome. Well, this has been a pleasure. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's fun chatting with you all and happy to come on anytime. I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you so much. Yeah, we have to. I, I want to talk more next time about, about NFTs. So I have I have some more questions and I've, I've thought through some more of those things, but we'll save sure. it for a whole nother episode. <laughs> That's a whole new episode. <laughs> yeah, we can. I love to any I love talking about design. I love talking about Web3, NFTs, like all that stuff. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that maybe Pascal and I, we should think about how how we can maybe even use that platform. So For sure. I mean, I when we're when we're ready, I'll I'll definitely connect with you, and we can look at some ways to strategize around that. But for all the listeners, like again, the if I can impart one thing about Web three, the best advice to kind of get into Web three is to just start dipping your toes and experimenting, finding a wallet like MetaMask, and maybe going through the headache of buying your like. 100 bucks or something of, of crypto and just going through that experience is is really eye-opening and, and a valuable like educational experience and then using that out in the real world as well it gets get your feet wet with what's kind of out there because there's a lot of cool Agreed. stuff stuff happening now there is it's a great space totally yeah awesome all right thank cool. you so much Filippo. Well, thank you both it was Appreciate great chatting it. we'll talk soon